John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It's good to see you both. And uh, I think we're going to have an interesting show today because uh, we're switching from fixed wing now to uh, a helicopter accident involving a, uh, a prominent person and his family who were killed in an accident similar to the Kobe Bryant accident where you have two pilots this time operating a helicopter in weather conditions that probably uh, caused them to uh, to possibly get disoriented. But again, the board hasn't put out a prelim. They've only given us cryptic information. But I think, Todd, from this standpoint, why don't you brief the audience as to what we know thus far, and then we can talk about where the board needs to go with this. Well, certainly. This was a crash that occurred on the 9th of February, 2024, near the town of Halloran Springs, California. The uh, helicopter, Eurocopter EC-130B4, was flying from Palm Springs to Boulder, uh, Nevada, which is close to Las Vegas. And rather than taking a direct route to Las Vegas, it was taking a bit of a dogleg. It went toward the uh, west-northwest at first, from Palm Springs towards San Bernardino, went through the El Cajon Pass, and apparently from looking at ADSB data from the aircraft, it was following very closely Interstate 15, uh, going up past uh, Victorville and, uh, well, past uh, Victorville and eventually to uh, beyond Barstow. And about a half hour out of Barstow, near the very small town of Halloran Springs, is where the aircraft crashed. Now, the weather reports from airports en route didn't show any serious weather. Uh, maybe a broken clouds at 4,600 feet, I believe, at Victorville, and temperatures that were well above freezing. But according to witnesses at the scene of the crash, and also from the NTSB meteorologist, there was evidence that there was precipitation in the area of the crash. Now, unfortunately, this aircraft was not required to be equipped with either a cockpit voice recorder or flight data recorder. So much of what we know about what this aircraft was doing is from external data such as the ADSB. So we don't know what was being discussed by the two pilots. And let me also mention that one of the pilots, according to the NTSB, was listed as a safety pilot. So, yeah. uh, and Greg, you had something to say about single pilot operations of uh, Part 135 helicopters earlier. 
Yeah, one of the things that uh, concerns me is when you look at um, a number of accidents, including including the accident that uh, killed uh, a billionaire, Chris Klein, coming out of the Bahamas, where he had summoned his helicopter with their uh, with his two pilots to come out and um, transport his sick daughter and a friend along with uh, with Chris Klein back to uh, Fort Lauderdale so she could go to the hospital. And they took off on a black night in the middle of the night coming out of uh, coming out of the Bahamas and promptly flew that aircraft into the water. Uh, that aircraft was equipped with a cockpit voice recorder. And one of the questions that uh, we can banter around here shortly is whether or not helicopters of this level of sophistication, especially being used in 135 operation, um, should have at minimum either a cockpit voice recorder and or a flight data recorder um, for this very reason. But getting to that, um, some of the reports that I read, the, uh, the witnesses described a, quote, wintry mix. Um, well, wintry mix in California slash Nevada. It all depends on where you are. And, and what you want to call a wintry mix. If you're up in the high country, big bear Tahoe, places like that, yeah, wintry mix is going to be, you know, either wet snow, snow, or ice, or whatever. Down at those lower elevations, out in more of a desert area, um, that wintry mix could be liquid precipitation that is just on the verge of freezing. And if you fly an aircraft through it, helicopter or, or fixed wing, um, it's going to at least create some icing event for you in that that particular um, environment. So, John, I know that you've done accidents in the past involving, you know, this quote, wintry mix. And I can tell you all about the wintry mix from the ATR-72 and Rose Lawn and a variety of other accidents. But, um, you yeah, know. It's common up here. Up here in New England, it's common. I'm, I was surprised you didn't raise the issue because you've had to face that wintry mix where you, you scrubbed your flights I remember one or two oh, of yeah. was scrubbed because of a uh, you know, wintry mix here is heavy wet snow that uh, instantly can freeze on your on your car, on an airplane, on any vehicle. And the planes I fly are not authorized to uh, fly in, uh, in icing conditions. And according to the type certificate uh, data sheet of the EC-130 helicopter, it too was not uh, qualified to fly in these kinds of conditions unless certain... Um, extras were put on the aircraft. It's unclear if this aircraft had any of those protections in place to help it fly in that kind of weather. And I think, of course, that is, of course is going to be a very prominent issue that the board looks at in their investigation. But it really starts well before that, and it starts with what John preaches at the end of our show every single time. And that is, where was the pre-flight? Where was the weather evaluation, especially along the route of flight where it's obvious based on um, preliminary ADSB data that they were flying IFR? I mean, not the regular IFR, but the I follow roads IFR. Um, they were perfectly tracked over two major highways um, before they then ventured off into at least some higher terrain and ended up crashing. And the concern here is, of course, this is a 135 operation. This is a flight for hire. This is two pilots, even though one of them has been listed as a, quote, safety pilot. What does that mean um, for the purpose of this particular operation? 
And of course, what is the responsibility of one or both of these pilots, not only prior to taking off with a weather evaluation, but what are they doing along the route of flight to update their weather and determine whether or not they can continue that flight or they're going to have to go to an alternate or, in fact, retreat and go back to, to where they came from. It just looks like gross incompetence or complacency. You know, two pilots in the cockpit, are they both sleeping? They both not paying attention? Just, just uh, routine flying, not even paying, you know, not even look looking past their instrument panel? Because that's what it seems like. They're paying no attention. We're over the road. We're okay. And I like to point out that the according to the uh, type certificate for this for this helicopter, if night VFR is being flown, and this was a night VFR flight apparently, and when it, it's allowed, when additional equipment required by operational regulations is installed and serviceable, I'm not sure what that equipment is or whether this uh, helicopter had that. But given that uh, the data from the ADSB data and from the NTSB analysis that the aircraft was around 1,000 to 1,500 feet shortly before impact. It was uh, steadily reducing in altitude and picking up speed. And in my mind, I'm thinking, this doesn't sound like if the aircraft was under control, the actions that would be, that would be taken if they're trying to land the aircraft, because at the time they were flying at about 140 knots or so. It sounds, and Greg, you might be able to add in more than I can, it sounds like they were trying to get to a lower altitude to avoid whatever was happening weather-wise. Yeah, they could have uh, they could have been in a uh, in a descent to try and scud run, get out you know from underneath um, some you know ragged clouds, People, you know cloud a cloud deck or any kind of layered weather is not perfectly smooth on the bottom. It's going to be it's going to have a ragged edge and that kind of stuff. So you could be in and out of out of that kind of weather. This is 10 o'clock at night. You're flying into areas of high terrain. You're trying to follow a highway. And, and you brought up a good point earlier that, okay, if they're flying over a highway, yes, the only reference they're going to have are car headlights. But are there a lot of car headlights or are there very few headlights? And oh, by the way, if they think that those headlights are in fact a star or stars in the distance, all of a sudden now, the disorientation isn't really spatial disorientation where they get into, you know, a, a high speed diving turn and they don't know which way is up, but rather they're flying into what they perceive is a horizon, which is artificial because those cars are fooling them with their, with their headlights. And so, I mean, there's a lot of uh, physiological uh, things that the board will have to look at with regard to the environment they're flying in. And you bring up a good point, Todd, and that is, you know, if you're if you're trying to get down underneath it, you don't want to be, you know, born, you know, at 140 knots. I mean, the fortunate thing about the helicopter is you can slow it down and get into a better rate of descent at a slower speed and, and pick your way through it. Um, but in, in this particular instance, the, the question, of course, is, did they think that they were flying in cruise and following basically a VFR horizon that really wasn't a VFR horizon? And a couple of things about the area where the crash took place. Certainly, Interstate 15 was there, and this happened to be the Friday before the Super Bowl in Las Vegas, and they were flying toward Las Vegas, and 
I have no data on this, but I would presume that it's much more likely that there was more traffic going in the same direction the helicopter was flying than in the other direction. So yes, there might've been plenty of lights on the road, but I think that uh, headlights would have been not as frequent as taillights, which are red, of course. Another thing yeah. is there didn't seem to be any kind of uh, buildup on either side of the highway. This was outside of any of the small towns there. So the only thing lighted at 10 o'clock at night, presumably under low visibility conditions, the only thing lighted on the ground might have been the road itself. And if that's the only reference point, you don't clearly have a view of the rising terrain on either side. It might be very difficult to determine the horizon or determine what kind of bank you are without adhering to looking at the instruments. And we don't know what they're doing because we have no, so far, no video recording, no cockpit voice recording, no anything. And I say so far because there were four passengers on board the aircraft. A, the NTSB said they collected electronics in the scene. They weren't specific as to what electronics were collected. For all we know, there may be some personal electronic devices with information that could be useful, but they haven't said anything yet. Yeah, the concern I have, though, is that that wreckage burned. And um, and so even though they may have collected it, I get a feeling the report will be short saying that, you know, it's uh, it was too damaged by a post, post-crash fire to get any kind of useful information off of it. But again, we bring up the point of this type of helicopter operation, even though it's for hire, it's VFR only. And the question, of course, is if these guys got into instrument conditions, were they instrument current to get themselves out of those instrument meteorological conditions? Um, given the fact that, you know, all these flights, just like the Kobe Bryant uh, aircraft, that pilot, you know, he wasn't current with regard to uh, to IMC operations. And so that's going to be an issue of, you know, are these pilots current and qualified to be really be doing the flight that they were doing? And it's obvious that if they had done any kind of real thorough pre-flight with regard to the weather, and then, of course, monitored the weather along their route, checking in at the various airports, asking even ATC um, what kind of weather they may be painting um, along that route of flight. Uh, the question, of course, is why didn't they heed it if they did do it? And why didn't they do it <laughs> um, to make sure that uh, they could accomplish the flight safely? You know, we see this often. It, they, they don't check the weather in between. Pilots don't check the weather in between. What what is the motivation for them to do this? Why why do we see it so often, John? You know it's it's hard to tell. Again, you know I know what the weather is where I'm leaving. I know where the weather what the weather is at destination, and I can handle it in route. I can deviate around it, go above it, go below it, depending on the type of aircraft. That that tends to be the mentality. But in my years at the NTSB, when I was doing little airplanes. You hear private pilots or pilots flying in their own aircraft or even rented aircraft telling a flight service station briefer, I'll take off and, and check it on the way. If it looks bad, I'll come back. They don't yeah. come back. They come back in a box. Yeah, uh, I've heard that. I've heard that more than once myself. Yeah. And they think that, okay, well, you know, I'll bail out. I'll go to an alternate. I'll get below it. I'll go do something else. They don't do that. 
they get too far into it. They, they start to test themselves. They test the aircraft and they usually fail that test. And now you have two professional pilots who are trying to quote, accomplish the mission because they have very important people sitting in the back who are paying a hell of a lot of money. And like everything else, and the board cited this in the Chris Klein investigation, that accident investigation, where they believed that the two pilots were under pressure from the boss to accomplish the mission, get this aircraft back to Fort Lauderdale. So you have self-induced pressure. Um, you may have company pressure. And that's another thing that the board needs to look at is what kind of helicopter operation is this? Are these guys operating on a shoestring? Do they have to do these flights and conduct them to make payroll or whatever else? Um, so there's a lot of influence that comes into this decision-making to go or no-go or to continue or no-go. Yeah, it's just, it's so painful to do these over and over and and, and have to talk about the same things over and over with you know, people who have perished. It's just that. And, and you have, and you have, I'm sorry, you have people with the wherewithal to pay top dollar and they, they hire these operators. Now, John, you and I have had this discussion in the past. Um, and Todd, I think, you know, you can chime in very easily. And that is whether it's, you know, a billionaire with his family, or the NCAA who is chartering aircraft, who's doing the due diligence here? Who's actually checking out these operators? Who is finding out whether or not, you know, this is an operator that has two aircraft and is operating on a shoestring versus somebody that's got a, uh, you know, a well-rounded reputation um, and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, a lot of the charter operators out there, you know, the net jets of the world to, you know, mom and pops, <laughs> you know, jet, jet operation. You know, you have the Wyverns, you have the Argus's, you have all of these other companies that go in and vet these operators, give them a rating, and you can make an informed decision. Um, I know that HAI, you know, is a source. But again, why aren't these people who have all this money? making sure that whoever the operator is has a good reputation and isn't going to do stupid stuff that killed this guy. I mean, I don't care if you, I mean, you tell the boss, you tell the guy paying in the back, look, the weather's bad. We're going to put down somewhere else. We can get you, you know, ground transportation there. We'll arrange for a limousine. We'll do whatever it takes, but we're not going to try and get you there in the helicopter at 10 o'clock at night. It's just not happening. And, and, I, think I, and sometimes I, these guys are afraid to make that statement. I'm not sure if the NTSB will address that sort of thing because it turns out, as I mentioned before, this was the Friday before the Super Bowl. We don't know if uh, the passengers, who included the uh, CEO of the Access Bank in Nigeria, forgive me if I mispronounce his name, uh, Herbert Wigway, uh, he and his family and another financial colleague, we don't know if they're going to the Super Bowl, but this is true about the Super Bowl. Whenever the Super Bowl is held, doesn't matter what seat it is, every airport in the area is going to be very much full of corporate jets and other aircraft flying in. Now, why were they flying into Boulder, which is not in Las Vegas proper, as opposed to Las Vegas? I don't know. Were they going to the Super Bowl? I don't know. But the fact that the Super Bowl was there 
would probably mean there is extra pressure on all levels, including from charter operators, to satisfy the sudden demand of people who are willing to pay top dollar because it's a Super Bowl. They fill up Las Vegas has limited capacity for uh, non-commercial airplanes. So it fills up quickly because they have their own, the whole side of the airport is businesses that are that are from Las Vegas that have their hangars and have their airplanes. So the amount of space for for transient aircraft is is limited in Vegas. As big as that airport is, it's limited. So yeah, and in this case, I mean, these guys were based out of Burbank, if I remember right, and that's where they departed from. So you drop and go. But again, if you can't complete the mission, then you drop and go somewhere else that is within the realm of, you know, uh, your weather specs and everything else. You can't keep forcing the issue because we're going to keep having these types of accidents. And we're going to keep doing these shows and talking about the same dumbass stuff that professional pilots are doing to try and accomplish the mission. And it's very frustrating. And, you know, the FAA can only imply or at least impart so much regulatory enforcement. But again, the question is, why would you have an operator, especially with a client in the back like that, where, again, it's just a matter of just saying, look, we can't keep going. The weather is crapped out. It's come down. And I don't want to put you in a position of jeopardy. And I don't want to put myself in a position of jeopardy as the pilot. So we're going to come up with an alternate plan. Yeah, it may take you a little longer, but you're going to get there safely. You know, Greg, years ago, you and I used to do a number of uh, assessments for companies that would provide this service for wealthy people. And we wouldn't, you know, not going to tell tales out of school, but we did a very in-depth look at those operations and put restrictions on who could fly them, on what kind of equipment they were going to be on. Yeah. And uh, it's funny how that for a while we had uh, a number of people uh, querying us to do that for them. And, but in the last year or two, maybe since the pandemic, it just disappeared. Yeah. Do, they, do we suddenly have a whole bunch of people who don't care about their own well-being anymore? Yeah. And on top of that, you and I have made recommendations about fam, you know, a guy like this with his family not putting the entire damn family on the same aircraft. Right. Um, you know, we've preached that for a very long time. And even some company policy, um, some of the companies that we did had a policy that you're not going to put the whole executive management team on one aircraft. You're going to split them up between multiple airplanes or helicopters, even if it means utilizing supplemental lift. But yes. you know, now you get your whole family on board. And you know, it, I only know of one movie star that have, actually owns two Gulf Streams, you know, because money's not an issue with some of those guys. And uh, his family is split whenever they go. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense to do that. Um, and in this case, especially with, the, again, the weather. And, and here's the other thing that we really, you know, and we'll be happy to, you know, field your phone calls or drop us an email and we'll be happy to, to educate you. And that is that the, these folks need to, to at least have their handler. I can't imagine this billionaire dude getting on the phone um, to make the phone call but their handler, their special assistant, their personal assistant, whatever the hell you want to call them, um, call us 
because we'll be happy to help you vet the operator. Um, we can run on trap lines. We can find out information. We can talk to the FAA. We can do a lot of things before you commit to putting, you know, your boss, your client, whatever on an aircraft, especially with their family or their executive management team or anybody else. Um, because again, these are the kinds of accidents that have devastating impact, not only on the, on the family themselves, but, uh, you know, there was a, a very wealthy uh, Russian billionaire that was killed a year ago. Of course, Chris Klein um, was killed with, uh, with his daughter. And, and the concern is brand imaging, because these people are CEOs or owners of companies and that kind of stuff. And that'll tank a stock very easily. So there's larger ramifications. You kill the management team of a Fortune 100 or 500 company, that stock's going to tank. That happened to Kodak years ago, where they killed their executive management team in a Gulfstream accident. Uh, and they had the whole team on board and, and they paid the, the financial penalty for that. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that should be done. But in this particular instance, uh, putting your, quote, eggs all in one basket is not a wise move. You know, and, and it goes even further. All right. This, this guy is a financially well-off person in Africa, but he's pushing development in Africa right? with, his, with his resources and, and leverage with others. Right? Africa struggles trying to get out of a place where they are to a better place. And to have somebody at this level just taken out it sets back a whole region. Yeah. Maybe a long time before. In fact, from. I was uh, reading about this gentleman. I believe he was, uh, his organization was about to open a university in Africa in the next few months. Yeah. And so that university might still be there, but this motivating force behind it is no longer there. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's all up here. A lot of it, um, his personality, his character, you know, his wherewithal was the driving force. And the question is, who's going to pick that up and carry the ball? Um, yeah, with his family all gone, that, that blood tie to them uh, yeah. changes that changes everything. But I, I really think that, you know, the board has been concerned with putting 25-hour recorders on big airplanes, you know, uh, cockpit voice recorders. You know what? <laughs> you don't need 25 hours, I don't think. Um did you have pilots who let the uh, the CVR overrun itself for two hours? Yeah, but they there are strict protocols. There are strict procedures about having an event, pulling the circuit breakers, you know, not sitting on the ground with the APU and the uh, CVR. Okay, yes, extend them five hours, extend them 10. You don't need 25 hours because what do you do about privacy issues with all those other flight crews who are been who have been recorded and are archived on that 25-hour tape. How do you protect all of that, especially not necessarily from acts investigation, because the board will say, well, we're only going to talk about the event or listen to the event. Well, yeah, but unfortunately, the board is not in the litigation business. And being on the other side of the fence now, I see how they will reach through and get whatever else is on that, that audio tape. And, you know, no act of Congress is going to actually protect it. So, again, do you really need 25 hours or do we just need to extend a, a CVR for the inadvertent flight crew who fails to pull the, the uh, circuit breaker and we just bump it to five hours? But 
Here, you have a turbine-powered helicopter, the sophistication. You got two pilots. It's a flight for hire. And we have zero recording, de zero recording device. Now, some aircraft, voluntarily, the operator will put one or both on there. But why not focus your attention on mandating those recorders on a helicopter or, you know, like this, where the 10 or more seat rule basically excludes a helicopter like this? Why not just say, look, if it's turbine powered and I'm talking all the way down to, you know, again, a Learjet. Yes, they are required because they're a turbojet powered aircraft um, you know, seating capacity. But we've got levels of sophistication now where we've got to at least record this data, either with a flight data recorder or a cockpit voice recorder, because we're flying single pilot or two pilot operations in sophisticated turboprop aircraft and single uh, single engine jets um, where it doesn't meet the 10 or more. But we still want to get the data because this aircraft um, you know, these aircraft now are more sophisticated, more stuff can happen. And if some, I mean, I know some guys that are flying their single pilot, uh, their single uh, engine jet with two pilots, but because they only carry four passengers, we can't capture anything those guys are discussing. And we definitely don't have any kind of flight data recorder on it unless Again, the investigative team, if the airplane, you know, isn't too badly mangled or burned, may be able to get some of the information off the non-volatile memory. But to depend on ADSB data, it, it doesn't have the fidelity we really need to see what's going on. So I think that, that that's where the attention should be focused is capturing this kind of information on a helicopter like this so the investigators have a better opportunity to try and figure out what the hell was going on. Todd, I know that, you know, I mean, we've had these conversations and you talk about it all the time in a lot of our shows. And that is from that kind of perspective. I mean, where's the safety value? OK, you're going to say that these guys flew the aircraft into the ground. <laughs> Don't need to leave the office to figure that one out. The question is why? That's the heart of these accident investigations. And like in the Klein accident. The two pilots got spatial disorientation. Well, that's obvious. It's obvious. They flew the aircraft right into the or into the water right after takeoff. Why? That's what we have to fix is the why. What motivated them? Why were they so driven? Um, and we're not going to find that out. We can't capture a conversation between at least two, either two pilots or a pilot and a passenger who's going, look, I pay you a hell of a lot of money, dude, to fly this aircraft. Take me to where I need to go. Yeah, that's that happens all too often as well. Yeah, there's a lot of problems at that level. As we know, finding the pilots. I mean, I've flown enough cock cockpits with, with 121 crews that don't communicate, hand gestures and the rest of it. And I usually yeah. give them, I usually give them a lecture. That if something were to happen and they use some hand gestures, then we're going to look at the facts. We're not going to know them all, and we're going to blame the pilots for it, and it may not be their fault. So why not verbalize what you're doing? Yep. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's tough. And to have another, uh, another accident involving a machine like the one that's behind me, um, and, and, of course, 
kill an entire family. Uh, it's just, it is, it is sad. It is painful, especially for, for those of us have to deal with it every single day. Um, you know, you're looking at Hoppajet, that accident that recently happened down in Florida. Question is, what happened there? That's another one of those, you know, for higher operations, you got two professional pilots sitting in the front end. And, you know, there's a lot of rumor about, well, they ran it out of gas. How the hell did two professional pilots run an airplane out of gas of that level of sophistication by a company who that's their primary business is flying flights for hire? I mean, if you look at the tape with the fireball, that tells you that, that he didn't run it out of gas. Yeah. They mismanaged his fuel, but it looked like there was quite a bit of fuel on board. But again, these are the kinds of accidents that provide fodder for those people out there who are against private aviation. Oh, yeah, it's only those rich guys. And here's another accident that involved a rich guy and trying to force the issue and probably tried to force their will on the pilots to accomplish the mission. And I mean, there's all sorts of storylines that go with accidents like this. But we're in the business of finding out exactly why they happened so that we can implement at least safety protocols or at least, you know, retraining or, or ideas back into the system so that we don't keep having these same type of accidents. And oh, by the way, I'm sorry, that's the mission of the NTSB. Identify the root cause and prevent these same accidents from happening again. But to say, well, the pilots got disoriented. But you're not telling me why, and you're not telling me anything through a recommendation, how you're going <laughs> to prevent this from happening again. So, well, I've pontificated enough. I, I apologize for <laughs> getting on my soapbox, but it is frustrating. I know it is for you, too, as well, um, because we keep talking about these same type of accidents. And here, it's not just an accident with a pilot. These are two, quote, professional pilots being paid to exercise their skills, abilities, and knowledge so that they don't put themselves in these position, positions of jeopardy to have to use their extraordinary skills to get their ass out of them. So the question is, how's the board going to prevent a similar accident like this? I can't wait to see the recommendations that come out of this accident. Well, uh, this leads me into my second to last word, because as you stated before and repeatedly, you know, the NTSB has a role in preventing these things. But I say that this is an educational opportunity for the audience out there. There are people, not necessarily billionaires or people working for billionaires, who are in a position to make a decision as to whether or not to take a particular aircraft or a particular helicopter on a particular mission. Common sense should guide your decision making. You don't have to be an expert in aviation to know that, hey, I'm trying to rent a helicopter on a weekend where every rich person in the universe wants to rent a helicopter to go to this location. Am I being given the runaround? Did I want aircraft A, but they're saying, you know what? Aircraft A is unavailable. How about aircraft B? It's good enough for the job. You have to be in a position to be willing to say no, no to the operator you're trying to hire, no to the boss you may be. Uh, paying your 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 paycheck and uh, make it stay. And if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to, you know, offer up uh, your professional life over your decision making, then uh, you should have someone else make that decision for you. Yep, I agree. 
With that, John, I will leave you with our last words. Again, this is an accident where pre-planning failed. Right? If you're going to go flying, you need to do a good pre-planning session before you go to the airport. And after you get to the airport, do it again. And again, you need to do the weather here, there, and everywhere in between. And when you start, California's had a bunch of bad weather here for a while. When you start seeing the, the winter, wintry mix in California, you better be taking a damn good hard look at the weather in your route through those mountains. And when you get out to your airplane, pre-flight still hits high on our list of accidents that we look at doing a poor pre-flight so learn how to do a good pre-flight on the airplane and then after when you get up in the air put that head on a swivel especially in california and in uh, other areas with a lot of population a lot of people want to be flying the airline jobs are looking pretty good right now so a lot of it, a lot of young people are looking to, to get in it and todd how, how crowded is your airport out there in, in uh, uh, palo alto well, depending on when I fly, it could be a, a situation where I have to wait on the ground 15 minutes for the airplanes to clear out for me to fly out. And this is an airport that has mostly small training aircraft because there's a couple of flight schools there and a lot of corporate action because it's Palo Alto Airport. Mm -hmm. And you know what happens around Palo Alto. A lot of people with a lot of money need to get places. So I have to be on top of uh, my game whenever I'm out there. Yeah, I don't have any money and I still need to get places. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know that feeling, too. All right, please, please fly safely. Use your head. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.